0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you and uh, happy Earth Day. Um, as Nat said, my name is Dean Carlson. I'm from Wybrook Farm. We're located in Honeybrook, Pennsylvania. It's about 30 miles west of here. Um, and as you said, you know I had a career in finance before I decided to do this and I think if you'd asked any of my family or friends 10 years ago they would have said I was the least likely person in the world to be talking to you about this subject. Um, I went to school for economics at University of Chicago and went immediately onto the floor of the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. I worked for 15 years as a derivatives and bond trader. Um, Basically in that job I was trained to essentially make good decisions. So we used reason, logic, mathematics to make money in the financial markets. But one of the things that always bothered me in finance and in the economy in general was this idea that success was never good enough. We always had to be continually growing. And I never understood that. I didn't know why it wasn't good enough for a society to be rich enough. And so, you know, we always have this perpetual need for growth and I've come to see the word growth as the dirtiest word in the English language. We as humans seem to have this natural inclination to value things in the present much more than we do in the future. And maybe that comes from our hunter-gatherer brains, or even in modern economics you're taught right away that you have to discount the value of some future cash flow in order to put it into the present value. And if you take things out far enough in time, the value of that becomes virtually worthless. And so we always seem to devalue things in the future. It's this misperception that allows us to miss The danger of exponential growth. And today I want to talk to you a little bit about what exponential growth is and why it causes problems uh, in a sustainability standpoint. I'll go forward. Here's a picture of the farm. This is a quote I liked Anyone who believes that exponential growth can go on forever in a finite world is either a madman or an economist. So hopefully we'll leave today being neither of those two things. Dr. Albert Bartlett, a professor emeritus at Colorado State University, once said that the greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. It'd be impossible to read the newspaper without coming across several examples of what we think of as exponential growth. Um, We assume that human population can continue to increase at one percent a year forever. We we expect our economy to grow at three to four percent every year. Um, In the last quarter of last year, the economy grew at 2.6%, and we all still feel like we're in the middle of a recession. That just tells you how ingrained it is in everything that we do. China's economy has grown over the last 10 years at over 9%. We're so used to hearing these growth rates that we miss a very simple but important, this is what a graph of exponential growth looks like. We assume it looks something linear like this, but it really, in fact, looks like this. This is a graph of US GDP that looks exactly like that. One of the uh, simple and interesting implications of this, though, is that you can tell how long it takes for the size of something to double, by or you can estimate that, by simply taking 70 divided by a growth rate. So in our examples, if human population grows at 1% a year, it doubles in size every 70 years. If our economy grows at 2%, it doubles in 35 years. And at 4%, it would double in 17 and a half years and China's economy growing at over nine, almost nine and a half percent doubles every seven and a half years. Another important implication of that is you have to realize how quickly this doubling adds up. In ten doublings the size of something is a thousand times larger than originally, and in twenty doublings it's over a million times larger. So it tells you how fast, when you look at that graph, it catches up with you. One other important fact about exponential growth is at each, after each doubling, the size of that doubling is greater than the amount of all of the previous growth combined. It's more than that. So if we've doubled our use of oil in a certain amount of time, that's equivalent or more to all of the oil we've used in previous time. Let me give you one other example that I saw from Dr. Uh, Bartlett that that demonstrates the importance of getting off a path which relies on this growth. Imagine a bacterium in a bottle. It divides once a minute, starting at 11 p.m. And the bottle is completely full by 12 p.m., or by 12 midnight. So at what point would that bottle be half full? Simply, it's 11.59, because it doubles in that last minute to be full. And you can imagine, if you're the average bacterium in that bottle, you'd say to yourself, you wonder when you would start to realize that the bottle was filling up. But 1155, the bottle's still only 3% full and 97% empty. So you can imagine the leaders of the bacteria in this bottle assuring everyone that there's nothing to worry about. We have over 32 times more space. There's no problem. But in fact, they only have five minutes left. And then you can also imagine that these ingenious bacteria find some way to go looking for new bottles. You know, they drill in the Arctic and offshore. They find this hydraulic fracturing to break up shale formations, and they find three more bottles, but it really, in reality, only buys them an extra two minutes. At 12.02, because they keep doubling, they've already filled up those bottles as well. The only solution to this problem is to stop growing, and that's sort of what I want you to see about our situation today. We take this growth for granted. We assume it can continue forever just because it has in the past. In 2009, our GDP declined by only three and a half percent, and all we heard was, this is the second Great Depression, the world is ending. One last example of the impossibility of this infinite exponential growth is with population. If, we, if human population grew at 1.3 percent a year, which doesn't sound like much, in 780 years we would have a density of one person per square meter on the face of the earth. This is something that clearly can't happen but it it highlights the absurdity of something that we assume to be true. This growth rate relies on increasing amounts of natural resources to continue. The graphs of natural resources look very similar. This is human population. This is an even scarier version of it. But our, our consumption of global natural resources has continued to grow exponentially just like our economies have. The only problem with this is that we live on a planet that has a finite amount of resources, especially of non-renewable resources, and so we're gonna have to learn to deal with that. We can sit here and argue about how much of any one thing there is, but I haven't heard anyone arguing about the size of the earth increasing. Most notably, our our infinite exponential growth relies on a similar growth pattern in, in fossil fuel use. Energy is the key to our modern technological lives. The overwhelming majority of our energy, though, comes from fossil fuels, which is a, which stored carbon in the earth, which is obviously a non-renewable source, or it should be known to be a non-renewable source. We're essentially consuming our capital stock to generate current income. You know, this is the equivalent of burning the furniture and the floorboards to heat the house. Um, the second law of thermodynamics talks about how the entropy or disorder of a system increases over time. So we know that energy is neither, it's not destroyed, it's just transferred. But the second law tells us that more, that energy moves from more useful forms to less useful forms. And so one example of that is when we burn coal to produce electricity, we only get 35% of that stored value and the rest is lost to heat loss and other, other losses. You can think of this as a tax. So in this coal example, if we only get 35% of it, we have paid a tax of 186%. The problem here is that the benefit comes in the immediate, but the tax is paid by future generations from their loss of the stored energy in addition to the effect that it has on on climate change. You can also, uh, the supply of these fossil fuels is also becoming harder to extract over time. At the beginning, they were really easy to find. And so you can look at this, this transaction, in terms of the amount of energy invested for the amount of energy we get out. When we first started drilling for oil, the return on that energy invested was something like 100 to 1. So the tax was very small, maybe 1%. Now the, the energy that we extract by getting oil from the tar sands now is somewhere between 2 to 1 and 5 to 1. So that tax is somewhere between 20 and 50%. The use of corn ethanol to make oil is even worse. The, the energy returned from the energy invested is 1.2 to 1. So a tax of 83%. At some point you had, just have to ask yourself why we are doing this. It doesn't make any sense. This all sounds bad, but it gets much worse when we look at modern agriculture. Perhaps it's here that the limits to growth will be felt first and most tragically. The amount of arable farmland in the world is decreasing due to soil erosion from bad farming practices and we simply don't have any more virgin territory to exploit. After many decades of um, increasing crop yields due to fossil fuel based chemical fertilizers crop yields now are starting to, to, to top out in the major commodity crops due to basically the biological limits of the plant. As we, in face, as we face increasing water shortages and Rising global temperatures, food prices and shortages are sure to increase. Modern technology, or modern agricultural techniques, are heavily dependent on oil. It's estimated in this country that we use 10 calories of fuel for every calorie of food that we produce. That's something like a tax of 1,000%. This is insanity. We have to ask what future generations will say about us that we use their stored energy for nothing. Um, And the truth is, we don't have to do that. Modern agriculture also continues our tradition of destroying ecosystems whenever possible by killing all the life in the soil through the use of herbicides, pesticides, chemical fertilizers, and by plowing. There are as many living organisms in a teaspoon of healthy soil than there are people on the planet, but they require healthy soil in order to live. So my interest in farming began with the scarcity of resources in mind. Uh, pretty typical, I would say. Uh, I once once went to hear a famous investor, Jim Rogers, talk uh, to a group of assembled MBAs at Wharton and in a question in regards to career advice, he told them all to quit school and become farmers. I'm pretty sure that I'm the only person there that actually did that, but either way, I'm, I'm certain that in the future the people that know how to grow food in a sustainable way are going to be really important. So what is sustainable farming? If you Google sustainability, Walmart comes up on the first page. Um, if you look at Monsanto's website, they will tell you that they're committed to sustainable agriculture, but I can assure you that, that they're the epicenter of the problem and not a part of the solution. Sustainable farming sets out to produce food in a way that could be repeated infinitely on a given piece of land. And it's not relying on source resources that are limited. A grass-based system uses inputs that can can be renewed year after year. Because grass is a perennial, it doesn't have to be plowed every year. And in fact by grazing animals across the grass you can improve the quality of the soil year after year. In fact you can even build topsoil by using certain techniques and grazing animals over it. The people, the animals even provide an even evenly layered distribution of fertilizer on on the land as well. Sustainable farming simply tries to find ways to mimic natural systems that you see in nature all the time. For example, grass, grass-fed beef is simply mimicking the large buffalo across the great, her- great Plains of North America. It's interesting, lately, you've seen in the news some uh, conventional ag-supported studies trying to argue that grass-fed beef is actually has a higher carbon footprint than, than feedlot beef because the animals live longer and that they produce more methane when they eat grass rather than corn. But what they miss in this analysis is the carbon impact of the soil on which the animal is raised. When land is tilled, that that soil is exposed to the air and the carbon oxidizes and is lost and going up into the atmosphere. Whereas in a perennial grass-based system, that carbon stays in the soil. But Even more importantly, let's think back to high school science and think about the carbon cycle. It's the key to life on Earth. Basically what happens is plants through photosynthesis are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering that into the soil. The ways that this happens are not fully appreciated. It's, it's really a, a, a function of all of the soil microorganisms that are able to turn that carbon and put it back where it needs to be. This is, uh, if you kill them, you stop the carbon cycle. And this is a problem with no-till farming because it relies heavily on chemical uh, herbicides in order to, uh, to work. And so they've killed all of the microorganisms in the soil and so it's not doing the same thing. It's interesting to ask if it's possible to create or to pull carbon out of the atmosphere and thereby lower the carbon atmosphere just by simply growing grass and trees and savannas. I don't know the answer to that but I'd, I'd like to find out. The best part is there's very little downside to producing food this way. It's better for the soil microbes. It's better for the plants. It's better for the animals. And it's better for our human communities. Sustainable farming, though, isn't scalable. That's the problem. It takes a lot more farmers to do it this way. And for that reason, it doesn't fit into the conventional ag system. There's no need for large machinery or seeds or chemicals. Um, It just relies on perennial plants. Our global food system now is almost entirely reliant on annual crops. And it's really interesting to think that there really hasn't been a large society that had that reliance on annual crops that survived. They've all perished because they eventually destroyed their soils. One other reason for encouraging perennial grasslands with regard to climate change has to do with the effect that water has on climate. If you look at the way that we handle water in modern society, we do things exactly almost backward, completely backward. We try to get water off the land as quickly as possible into streams and rivers where it's lost, but we need to actually do the opposite. Um, When soil dries out, like we said, carbon oxidizes and is is released into the atmosphere, which encourages further runoff and leads to desertification over time. What we need to do is try to trap as much of that water on the surface as we can. When we think of surface water, we always think of lakes, streams, aquifers. But in fact, 65% of the rain that falls can be held in the soil itself uh, if it's allowed to do so. When we encourage carbon sequestration through photosynthesis, we actually increase the amount of water that the soil can retain. For every 1% of increase in soil carbon, a square meter meter of soil can hold an extra 16.8 liters of water. So what does this have to do with climate change? It has to do with how the water cycle and the carbon cycle work together to affect temperature. When the sun's rays fall on bare soil that energy goes into sensible heat or heat that you can feel it raises the temperature. Whereas when it falls on saturated soil with biomass covering it that, that energy goes into latent heat that's held by the water vapor um, in that area. And so through, um, and it has a cooling effect on, on the environment. And the, same, and the opposite thing happens at night. It releases that energy back when it's cooler. In this way, the Earth's temperature is regulated. And I know that this, this process refers to a microclimate, but it's possible that this could apply also to a more macro environment. And it's possible that we could reduce global temperatures if we were planting more grasslands, trees, and savannas. So it's with this in mind that I try to grow, personally grow, food in a sustainable way. I wanted land that was close to where people live because I feel like as fuel prices increase all food is going to have to be produced locally. I think that we'll either, people will either move back to where food is produced and or we will start to have to put more land close to cities back into production. Southeastern Pennsylvania is very blessed in that it has very good soils. We're close to a lot of people and we have efficient transportation networks. So I purchased 350 acres in northern Chester County and set out to do something different. We, uh, the, the property had these really amazing old stone structures that um, we restored because I wanted people to come to the farm to have this connection with their food and with where it comes from. We have a unique situation where we can tell you how each animal on our farm has spent every day of its life, including its last and then what's happened to it after that. I believe it's very important to minimize the amount of fossil fuels that we use on the farm, and one of the easiest ways we can do that is having the animals harvest the food themselves. Instead of using tractors to cultivate, fertilize, plant, weed, and harvest crops, it's just more efficient to let the animals do it themselves. This requires using electric fencing to hold animals in a certain area each day, and we move them at least once a day to fresh pasture. We have our pigs roaming in the woods, and we do the same thing with chickens. We raise them all out on pasture and move them each day to fresh pasture. I'm also fascinated by this idea of multi-storied perennial agriculture, where we can have plants growing both on the surface of the soil and above. Um, This is often called silviculture. Cattle and sheep are herbivores and so all they need is grass, but pigs and chickens and other animals need other sources of protein. And one of the ways that we can do this over time without using grains which are very energy intensive to grow is by having perennial trees for their food supply. So we've, we've planted hundreds of trees in our pasture as well as going the other way and cutting out some of the trees in our forested areas in order to have grass growing on the surface and provide several sources of food. In this way, I hope to take land that was agriculturally useless and make it more productive. I believe that these ways of feeding animals will become more and more important (coughs) as grain prices rise because they're so heavily correlated with oil prices. This will all take time, but the sooner we get started, the better. I also think it's important that we produce as much energy on the farm through renewable sources as possible. So we've installed over 52 kW of solar power, converted our house to geothermal heating and cooling, solar hot water. These are all small things and we're still not energy independent, but I think every little bit counts. I often wonder why it is that everyone doesn't understand the implications of our assumed exponential growth. Why isn't this obvious to everyone? I'm certainly not the first or smartest person to think about these things. Thomas Malthus in the late 1700s actually wrote a book that was related to the issue of you know, geometrically in, in increasing population and that we would eventually run out of ways to f- feed ourselves. The thing that he didn't realize at that time was that we would find ways to turn fossil fuel into food. But as you see, these fossil fuels are, lim- are subject to these same limits of growth. In 1972, the Club of Rome wrote an important book called The, Limited, the Limits to Growth which modeled this situation using computers that I've talked about today. It's been largely ignored. It was recently updated, but not many people have done anything about it. I'm pretty sure that governments won't be able to solve this problem. It's going to take us as local communities to make a difference. There's a quote from Machiavelli that sums up the situation quite well, I think. There's nothing more difficult to carry out, nor more doubtful of success, nor more dangerous to handle, than to initiate a new order of things, for the reformer has enemies in all those who profit by the old order, and only lukewarm defenders among those who would profit from the new order. This lukewarmness arises partially from fear of their adversaries who have the laws in their favor, and partly from the incredulity of mankind who do not truly believe in anything new until they have experienced it. My hope is that we as local communities can start to make these necessary changes ourselves Perhaps there's enough of us in this room that can believe in something without having to experience it, without seeing this crisis in real time. Every time you purchase food, you make the decision for how this animal is gonna, what system that animal is going to be produced. And my job was simply to give you that option. Thank you.